Well, I have to tell you, I had no plans of falling in love. And I actually had taken a lot of steps to make sure it wouldn't happen. But I was 18. I was a freshman at Andrews University. And maybe I wasn't quite as smart as I thought I was. Now, in the fall, I had dated a lot of different people just to kind of get acquainted, but I had made it clear every time that I was not looking for a serious relationship. But there was this one guy who kept coming back. And for some reason, I kind of let him. I got to thinking I was seeing too much of him, that maybe I was getting a little bit more attached, spending too much time than I wanted to do. And I told him, you know, we need to take a break. We need to back off. We need to slow down. I really just don't even want to see you for, for maybe 10 days. I don't want any contact at all. And he, he agreed. He thought that that was an okay plan. But, you know, he had a plan, too. You see, I lived on the third floor of Fort Lampson, and my room looked out over the center of campus. And he worked stocking shelves at, Mount, or at Apple Valley Market in night, and he didn't get off until like midnight. Well, the first morning after we decided on having this hiatus, my telephone rang, and this was telephone on the wall because we didn't have telephones in our pockets back then. And my roommate answered it, and a familiar voice said, tell Candy to look out the window. Well, I went and raised the, the blinds, and there, written in the deep snow, someone had stomped out great big letters that said, nine more days. Okay, I smiled. That was cute. But the next morning when I got up and pulled up the blinds, the nine was stomped out and there was an eight. And I want you to know that every day, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, the last number had been stomped out and replaced until finally it said, no more days. The things we do for love, the things we do for love. Well, I know that you're thinking that Valentine's Day kind of went to my head, right? And sometimes we really do over-romanticize, over-sentimentalize love until it gets to be kind of something sappy and drippy and kind of almost nauseating. You know, the, the number one theme of movies, of course, is love. And all the popular songs, the first thing they sing about, of course, is love. And we kind of take love and change it into something that maybe it never was intended to be. The most common thing I think of is at Christmas time, people watch those Hallmark movies, right? I mean, you're almost un-American if you don't. And I think sometimes that we can become cynical and we can get kind of harsh about the whole love thing because sometimes we turn it into something that is just kind of sickeningly sweet. But I want you to do something for me, okay? Right now, I want you to take just a minute and I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to go back to that place where you really knew for the first time that you were in love. 
I want you to see that place. I want you to see that face. I want you to remember the words. And I want you to remember how it felt. Now, I can't see you, but I've got to think that you're smiling because there's something very special about the first time you know you're in love. And you smile that deep down kind of smile that only one person in the whole world really understands. There's something special about being in love for everyone. And even though it's different for different people, we all look back on it and we smile. For some people, it's kind of described as like, we get to be the center of each other's worlds. And some people describe it's like a new feeling, something I haven't felt before, a very passionate understanding of another person. A popular verbiage today is soulmates, the feeling of maybe becoming one and, and being exactly on the same wavelength. I think that being in love is a careful weaving of the head and the heart into something very beautiful and something very strong. And I think that the emotion of being in love is something that we savor and we hold on to no matter how many years ago that we first felt it. Yet, as powerful as the feeling of being in love is, I think that the connection between the human heart and the divine heart was designed to be something even closer, even stronger. I find it captivating that when we look in the Bible, there are a lot of in love kind of parallels that the writers draw between God and his people. He often refers to his people as his betrothed or his bride. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God rescues an abandoned girl child and takes care of her and cherishes her. And when she grows up, he takes her as his bride. In Isaiah 54, God's people are feeling alone and abandoned and helpless, like a widow with nowhere to go. And he says to them, your maker is your husband. Through the Gospels, Jesus is always telling parables where he is the bridegroom. And then if we go to Revelation 21, we finalize that imagery beautifully when an angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The Bible consistently parallels God's relationship with his people like the love between a man and a woman. And even though there are some very distinct differences, I think that God wanted to give us an illustration that would be a relationship that we would strongly desire. God wanted us to understand that his love for us is something that is so desirable that we would really do anything to have it. I think he longs for his people to have that same kind of relationship that when we think of him, we smile, that deep down kind of smile that only one person in the whole universe 
really understands. But if you can kind of have such a special intimacy with God, can you also lose that closeness? If you can be in love with God, can you fall out of love with God? You know, apparently so. Because in Revelation 2, when Jesus is talking to the church of Ephesus, he really addresses this. He speaks very clearly to them. He says, I know that, that you are really hard workers. I know that you persevere, that you hold on, that you're really holding on to your work. But he says, you know, you've abandoned your love for me. You have lost your first love. What does falling out of love look like? Well, in human terms, when we think that someone has fallen out of love, we think they've, they're just going through the motions. There's, there's no spark, there's no passion. They just kind of tolerate each other. And if you believe what John writes in Revelation, apparently that can happen between you and God as well. You know, I think all of us who are really following Jesus long for a deeper experience, something more than what we have. But sometimes we don't have a clue how to do it. How do you really fall in love with Jesus? What did that first love look like? And you know, I think that is exactly where Acts gives us the information that we all need. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It's written, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What is this talking about? What is the time period? These people are the followers of Jesus after the Holy Spirit fell on them at Pentecost. Let's look back at the history just a little bit, because it was just in a couple months' time that these people had experienced the absolutely heartbreaking, gut-wrenching loss of Jesus on the cross. Then they experienced the unbelievable, miraculous resurrection. Then they watched him go up to heaven, and, and then there was Pentecost, when they themselves felt the power of God in them, they felt it physically, they felt it emotionally, they felt it spiritually as God empowered them through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was burning in these people. 
in an amazing way. And the whole thing happened in like a period like since last Christmas till now. A lot of change and a lot of change really fast. But you know, you've got to think that they had been waiting for this for centuries. The Messiah had come and he had shown them a love like they had never experienced before, something they did not even know was possible. He gave up heaven to show them love. And he showed them in an audible way, a visual way, a tangible way. And he, he showed them that he valued them more than his own life. And he lived that out in an unforgettable way. Though growing into love is a process, the followers of Jesus understood in a whole new way the love of God like they had never imagined it before. And how did they respond? What did they do? What happened? We have a lot to learn about Jesus and our love relationship with him in these few verses right here. First off, I don't know what translation you have, but the King James Version starts off with this descriptor. They continued steadfastly. The ESV says they devoted themselves. But when you dig into the Greek, it goes even deeper. It means that they were constantly diligent to give attention to something constantly. Doesn't that sound a lot like being in love? They were giving Jesus their full and complete attention. But what did that look like? How did they act that out? The first thing it says is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's learning, right? Now, some of them had no doubt seen Jesus in person. Some of them had listened to him, but some of them had only heard that one super powerful sermon that Peter had given. But now the disciples had the opportunity to fill in for everyone the rest of the story. And it was the greatest love story that anyone had ever heard before. I can only imagine as the disciples tried to share what was going on, that when one stopped for breath, the other one picked up the story. And the excitement and the love was so overpowering that all the listeners were so captivated, so mesmerized by this amazing story of love. The second thing they did was they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now the word that is there in the Greek, which is one that you've probably heard before, it's koinonia. And we, we commonly call that, we call that fellowship. But again, if you go deeper in, it's even closer than fellowship. It's partnership. Again, a word that we use when we think of, of falling in love and joining our lives with somebody partnership. There was a oneness between Jesus and his people. They were together. You know, they didn't have a great big place to gather. I mean, come on, there were 3,000 of them. So they met together face to face and shoulder to shoulder, crowded in people's homes as together they 
ate, they shared, they prayed, they were excited about Jesus, the one who had finally come. And the third thing they did was they devoted themselves to prayers. Now, you know, together they talked about the one that they had seen face to face. Some of those people had been in a locked room when Jesus suddenly just appeared. Others of them had seen him ascend up to heaven. These people knew he wasn't far away. They knew that he was right there. So talking to him must have been the easiest thing in the world. And they had no doubts that he was hearing them, that he was listening with rapt attention. So they gathered and prayed. They praised him. They thanked him. They asked him for direction because they were on, on totally untried territory, roads that no one had gone on before. And they asked him to intervene in the problems and the struggles and the questions that they had. I think their prayers must have been deeply, deeply meaningful to them. And what was the result? Acts says, and awe came over every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, I think we use the word awesome kind of like we use the word love. We kind of overuse it and we miss the true strength of it. But I think that here, when it says that awe came upon every soul, I think it is a reverential kind of awe that left them wide-eyed and aware that Jesus was not just gentle and tender, but that Jesus was the most powerful force any of them had ever experienced on land or on the sea. He was a powerful, powerful force. And they began witnessing miracles, healings, answered prayers that truly made people aware that Jesus was indeed God. It goes on, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. You know, there was an unusual spirit of generosity. I think possessions just really didn't even matter. When someone had a need, the people responded and took care of it. There was none of this, oh, this is mine, or I'm saving this for retirement. No, the sharing was as natural as breathing because the love that they felt for Jesus permeated everything they did and reached into the lives of every person that they met. Love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't just some embroidered thing that they hung on the wall. It was something that Jesus had written on their hearts and it totally impacted the way that they lived every single day. And day by day, attending the temple together. Yeah, they worshiped at the temple. You've got to remember these people were Jews and they had not started a new religion. They just saw that Jesus was the ultimate culmination of the Jewish desire to see the Messiah. So they went to the temple, they worshiped, they praised him. This was everything they had dreamed of, everything they had been waiting for. And I think that when they were there, they didn't just nod at other believers. I think they couldn't help but share that the Messiah had come 
It was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to them. And you know, I think that when we look here, it says the King James says that they were with one accord in the temple. And the Greek again takes that deeper to mean they had the same passion, the same mind. Um, maybe soulmates with Jesus. You know, that is what Jesus had, that passion. And they shared it together. But you know, with everything else that they had experienced, how could it be really any different? Because these people truly were the bride of Christ, the betrothed. They responded as the body of Christ. And then Acts continues, And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, these people were just plain happy. They had glad hearts, generous hearts, and they had so much to praise God about. And it just kind of made them the kind of people that other people wanted to be around. Jesus was described when he was a boy as growing in strength and wisdom and in favor with God and man. Why would we be surprised that his body would also be described as having favor with all people? And then it ends with these words, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. No wonder they were a growing church. Having people join them. Can you imagine? Every day they had found the love of Jesus to be irresistible, uncontainable, and they had fallen in love hard. And it had totally and completely changed their lives. Now, I grew up in a home where I was pretty confused about romantic love. My mom was a single mom, and her biggest fascination was drugstore romantic novels. And she read all the time. Now, as a child, I learned that those pictures on the front of those novels was clearly what romantic love was about, right? Well. You know, my mom looked for love. I think she looked for love all her life, and, it, and I'm not really sure she ever found it. But as I grew up, I was choosing to be more in Christian circles. But you know, I found Christians looking for that same kind of love in very much the same way. But they weren't looking in romantic novels for their answers. They were looking for self-help books. And they read books like His Needs, Her Needs, or maybe Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages. And not that those books do not have wonderful materials. It can really help you struggle as you work through your relationship. But those books don't provide the real sense of passion, of true love. When you really love somebody, all the books in the world cannot substitute for the true passion of the heart. And you know, sometimes I think that Christians 
in their relationship with Jesus are kind of satisfied with a similar sort of false relationship. They want something that's a true relationship with Jesus, but they just don't know how to find it. We certainly don't want to go with the the romantic novel thing, but sometimes I think we swing in the other direction. We, We don't want to base our love on feelings. And anyone who's been in a relationship any amount of time knows that relationships go through dry periods. There are times of pain. There is time of disagreement. There's time when you just feel like God is not even listening. We all know that. I do believe that love is a high and holy principle. It's true. But Jesus gave us both a head and a heart. And I believe that he wants us to use both of them in our relationships with other people and in our relationships with him. Just as a romance is not very satisfying if it is just a mental agreement between two people, I think that religion can be empty and rote and meaningless, though we can go through the motions without a vital relationship with Jesus. You know, we can study. We can, I don't know, learn a lot of memory verses. We can maybe even have read some of the greatest theologians who ever lived. But that does not substitute for a real relationship. You can be listening today, whether you are in person or whether you are watching online. And you can be going to church like good people do. You can work for the church. You can feel like you're doing God a favor by being with us today. But if we don't have the relationship with Jesus that he died to give us, we are missing out. He paid a great big price, a mammoth price. And the truth is that the God of the universe desires a relationship with you more than anything. And I wonder sometimes how we can be so flippant and casual, how we can just shrug it off and say, I don't know, I just don't have time. Through the years, my husband and I have had the opportunity to talk with a lot of young couples as they are getting started or as they are trying to figure out those feelings of losing their first love. Sometimes it's helpful to have a model, someone who's been there, who's walked further than you, who kind of knows the way. And you know, I think that Jesus did that for us and his relationship with us when he left us this example in the book of Acts. They were just a group of hodgepodge people Believers who truly understood what it meant to love Jesus. I think it's time for each of us to look inside our hearts and and maybe close our eyes and think about Jesus and smile. And, And do we smile that same deep down kind of smile that only one other person in the universe really knows? You know, I think that Jesus had a plan for us, and he laid it out in the book of Acts. John said to the church of Ephesus, we can do the works we did at first. 
It's that simple. We can go back to the model. The first thing is we have got to pray for the Holy Spirit and we have got to pray for him like we mean it. Secondly, we have got to come together and learn and partner and pray. And you know, I think when we do, we will see changes. We will feel that passion in ourselves. We will see God working in our church. We will find a new joy in worship and in being together. And we will be the kind of place where other people want to be. Not because we have a, a beautiful building or an amazing organ or because it's kind of a prestigious church. No, we will have people come here because they will see that we love Jesus and they will want his love in their lives. If you're not part of something like this, I want you to be aware that this is beginning to happen in our Spencerville Church. And I want to invite you to be a part of it. You know, we have got a number of small groups that have started in the last six months. And we have watched the Lord do really remarkable things. We actually have two more groups that will be starting next week. But small groups are a place for learning. You can look at Daniel and Revelation. You can look at journeying with Jesus, studies in Hebrews or Acts or Philippians or Hebrews. There's all these different kinds of stories. There's books to be studied. Some are studying authors like Tim Keller, Priscilla Shire, Ellen White, to go deeper into God's word and to learn to know him better. Learning is happening here. Small groups are for partnering. You know, on Valentine's Day, just last week, the members of one of our small groups went out and worked with an organization called Home Not Borders. And they spent the day moving furniture, helping to get apartments ready for refugees who are moving to this area. That same group has had things like a block party or delivered food to people who were in isolation, very sick with COVID. They continue to pray for God to show them where he is working so he can join in the work. And you know, we have had several small groups who have gone out and ministered just like the early church did. Small groups are for partnering and small groups are for praying. Just this week, I was talking to one of the small group facilitators and she told me she was so amazed at how her group had developed deep and meaningful relationships over prayer. She said that every day they would pray for the needs of the people in this church and that it became deeply moving to them. And when they can't meet together because of other circumstances, they get on the phone so that they have the opportunity to pray for you, to pray for this church. And they too have seen amazing answers to prayer because small groups are for praying. I'm sorry if you think this is a commercial, it's not really meant to be. But in honesty, I have to tell you, I am excited about what I see happening in our church. And how could I have that joy, watching the Spirit move and not invite you 
to be a part of it. Maybe as you're listening to me today, you're thinking, well, I really can't be guilty of losing that first love because I have never in my life had that kind of relationship with Jesus. If that's so, I just want you to know that, that Jesus is waiting today, waiting for you. Or, or maybe you are thinking, it was so much easier for those early church people. You know, they had seen Jesus, they had known Jesus. But I can promise you that those people had struggles. They dealt with pride. They dealt with prejudice, just like you do. Or maybe you're thinking, uh, I don't know. I'm just going to go back into my head. It's just safer up there. I'll have to tell you, ritual really is easier than relationships. Relationships are work. But I do also have to remind you that relationships are why Jesus came. If any of these are true, I hope you know that this message this morning really is for you. Because all relationships are a two-way street. And Jesus can reach out his hand, but there is nothing going to happen until you decide to reach back. You know, when Frank and I were in our very first district, we had a long drive between the two churches, and we would go to serve both churches every Sabbath. There was a long stretch of country road where someone had painted some graffiti on telephone poles. And the first week that we noticed it, we just laughed because on the first telephone pole, it said, will you? On about a tenth of a mile down the road, it said, be. And then the next telephone pole said, my. And then the last one said, Valentine. Will you be my Valentine? We laughed. We thought, oh, there's got to be a story to this. But it seemed like it was not just like a one Valentine Day kind of thing, but kind of someone's search for real love. What's interesting, though, is that every week as we passed that, it kind of became our own special way of reaching out for assurance from each other. You know the crabby mornings? You know, the mornings you're running late and the mornings that someone has really annoyed you and you just really are not in a very worshipful mood. You know, one of us would get to that, when we got to that telephone pole, one of us would reach out and say, will you? And the other one would reach out his or her hand and say, always. With that kind of a smile, that deep down kind of smile that only one person in the world really understands. And you know, through the years, just those two words have become a very significant thing to my husband and me. Kind of a secret code that when we need reassurance, all we have to do is look at each other and say, will you? You know, this week after we had the big snow, I was out walking the dog in the morning and I had an idea. I ran back into the house, put the dog in, and went back in the front yard and started stomping in the snow. Great big letters that were easily visible from the bedroom window. And I stomped out W-I-L-L-Y-O-U, question mark. Will you? This morning, 
the one who loves you most in all the world, you, with all your ridiculous fears, with your stubbornness, with all the skeletons you have in that closet, he is asking you the same thing. And he's looking at you with that deep down kind of smile that only you can really understand. And he's asking you that same question. Will you? Lord Jesus, I know you're asking. And I know that there's hearts here who are responding. Oh Lord, we just really want to know you. And it's hard, we get distracted. There's so many things that take our time and demands. Oh, Lord, help us realize how great your desire is for us. And I pray, Lord, that we will respond with a desire, that we will follow through with our desire, and that we will live out our love in a way that makes us stronger, more sure of you, and changes this church, and changes this community. Thank you for the work that you have begun in us. May we see you bring it to completion. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.